Good morning, church. See, Brady, it's in the delivery. I, I, I was thinking of that. I was like, maybe if I put a little extra spring in my step and a little sing-songy way, I'd get more of a response, and it worked. So remember that for the 11, and you can do, good morning, CTK, and then you'll get, oh, see, see, it's, you got to channel Robin Williams for those of you who are a little bit older. You know that reference. All right. Um, well, if I haven't met you yet. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you're here with us today, and I'm so glad that there's a little sunshine. It's going to be a beautiful day today. Spring is right around the corner, and that, that brightens my mood. I don't know about yours, but that certainly brightens my mood. And what also brightens my mood, powerful segue here, is getting back into the book of Luke. Um, we're going to be uh, continuing where we left off right before Christmas and we'll pretty much um, be in the book of Luke for the rest of this year. Uh, we might take a little break over the summer, I'm not sure yet, but we're, we're going to be in Luke for a while. And what we're going to look at today is the prophecy of Simeon. And uh, it's about Jesus when he was still a baby. So that's where our story is. And Luke tells us this story of the prophecy of Simeon as a way to foreshadow some of the prominent themes of Jesus' ministry. And essentially, what Simeon is going to tell them is that when Jesus grows up, he will be a disruptive force that changes everything. Some people are going to welcome that change and embrace Jesus, while other people will resist that change and reject Jesus. But either way, no one who truly encounters Jesus remains the same. And everyone who truly encounters Jesus is changed. That's what we're going to look at today. Let's dig in. We're in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and before I read the text, let me just give you a, a quick recap of where we were. So right before Christmas, where we left off is that the angels had appeared to the shepherds who were keeping their flocks by night, remember the Christmas story? And they had announced to the shepherds that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. Now, for whenever a new baby is born... The Old Testament law required certain things to be performed. Um, for a boy, they required a circumcision. If it was uh, for the mother after the child was born, there was a, a time of purification after giving birth. And so in this story, what Luke is showing us is that Joseph and Mary were very careful to obey God's word, and they were faithful to everything that was required there. I was going to read to you Leviticus chapter 12, and I decided against it um, because that's where these laws come from. So you'll just have to, you can read that on your own time if you like. We'll just jump right in here to Luke chapter 2, and uh, we'll start at verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. We'll pause here for a second. One thing that stands out just in reading these few verses is how careful Joseph and Mary were to uh, observe everything that was in the Old Testament law. And this is important because what Luke is trying to demonstrate here is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who will accomplish and bring to pass all of God's purposes. 
So Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for, for, you know, ever since the garden and the fall. There's, Jesus is the one they were waiting for. The Messiah is now come. And so whenever Jesus is born, Luke wants to make sure that it is very clear that everyone, uh, or, or that the, the parents of Jesus and that Jesus' early childhood was reflective of all the things that were commanded in the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. So Jesus is the one who's going to put everything back in order. He's the one who will uh, accomplish all of God's purposes. And so Luke's drawing attention to the fact that even from infancy, every little detail of Jesus' life was done to obey Scripture. So there's, just uh, in case you missed it, we read it. Verse 22, according to the law of Moses. Verse 23 says, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Verse 27, which we haven't read yet, was according to the custom of the law. All of these things, there's, there's a, all these four references to specific things that were done in accordance with the law. Like I said, all the laws here mentioned are from Leviticus 12, and these laws are, are pertaining to um, the birth of a new child and the purification after that. And Luke says in these four different occasions that what they did was in accordance with the law. So the law, like the the particular things is every boy that was born needs to be circumcised on the eighth day. So presumably, um, there's no explanation exactly given, but the eighth day would represent new creation, right? The completion of one week, and then the eighth day would be the beginning of a new week. So it represents new creation. Maybe that's what that uh, means. Every mother would need to be ceremonially purified after the birth of a son for 40 days after the birth of a new boy. And then every firstborn son needed to be dedicated to God because the firstborn son played an important role in the family. Luke also says that Mary carried out these purification rites in the temple. So uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that story. Jerusalem is about five miles away. And their hometown is Nazareth. And so if they're going from... Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, they would pass by Jerusalem on the way back home to Nazareth. So they probably would have hung out in Bethlehem. I mean, he was circumcised eight days later, so most likely uh, they were in Bethlehem probably during this whole purification time. But then at the end of it, they would start heading home and pass through Jerusalem so they could carry out this purification in Jerusalem, and they would go to the temple to do it. Now, the, the Old Testament law didn't require the temple to be the place where they carried out these laws, but there was a place where they decided to do it. Um, and the temple in the Bible is theologically significant because the temple represented the hope of salvation for God's people. But not only that, the temple also represented God's people rejecting him and breaking covenant with him. So the temple simultaneously represented these two realities. One is God's people were rebellious and the temple was a place of, of purification, God's presence with his people. And on the other hand, God's, the temple represented God's presence with his people and the hope of salvation. So you could say the temple symbolized the need for salvation and the hope of salvation. And so the temple is the setting of the story that we're, that we're reading here. And that's important because Jesus himself, this little baby, he is the temple. He is the true temple of God. He is the true dwelling place of God with his people. And just like the temple, Jesus himself is the hope of salvation for God's people. And just like the temple, Jesus will be rejected by God's people. So here we are, Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus, on their way home to Nazareth, passing by Jerusalem. So they stop in Jerusalem. They go into the temple. 
they enter into the temple, into the, the courtyard area. And as they enter the temple courtyard area, they meet this man. And this man has been eagerly waiting for pretty much his whole life for this moment to arrive. Now, let's keep reading. Let's go to verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon is an unusual guy. This is the only place in the Bible where he's mentioned, and he's only, even in the Gospels, he's only mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. He isn't a priest, so he doesn't hold any kind of official religious office. He's just an ordinary man, but he's an ordinary man who is here at the temple. And Luke describes him as righteous and devout, and that he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what does that mean? The, the language, consolation of Israel, that has a messianic implication, that the consolation of Israel is language that specifically refers to the Messiah who was to come in the Old Testament. And so Simeon, he was eagerly awaiting the arrival of God's Messiah, the hope of God's people. And not only that, the text says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. In fact, the, the text mentions the Holy Spirit being upon him in some way three different times in this story. What does that mean? Well, throughout the book of Luke, the Holy Spirit is prominent, more prominent than in the other Gospels. And this is important because the presence of the Holy Spirit signals the beginning of this new era, this new era in redemptive history where God is changing things. God is making things new. God is shifting the ordering of the way he deals with his people. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is present there, but it's not the way we know it. So in the Old Testament... The Holy Spirit was not given to all believers. The Holy Spirit was only with individuals of unusual callings. So the Holy Spirit would come upon a king. The Holy Spirit would come upon a prophet or somebody that was doing something, uh, some service to God in some unusual way. But the Holy Spirit was just not indwelling with all people at, at that time. In the New Testament, though, the Holy Spirit was poured out generously on all believers. That's what we see happening in the book of Acts on Pentecost. You know, Acts chapter 2, the story of the Spirit comes down and everybody speaks in tongues and it was a really wild scene. That's when the Holy Spirit was kind of poured out on all people there in the book of Acts. So Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection ushered in this new era of redemptive history, as we see in the book of Acts, where all believers, everybody who is a follower of Jesus, is now indwelt by God's presence of the Holy Spirit. The promise of this in the Old Testament, we see in, in the book of Joel. Let me read to you Joel chapter 2. So this is Old Testament prophet, and he's telling us what will happen when the Messiah comes. Okay, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward 
that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit will be given to everyone who believes. Men and women, young and old, every economic class. If you're a servant, if you're rich, if you're poor, everyone that is a believer in Christ will be given the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit. Luke draws attention to this guy, Simeon, who isn't an official uh, priest or he doesn't have an official office. But this, just, this ordinary man who's here in the temple, this place where, that represents the hope of salvation... And it says the Spirit is on him. Three different times this Holy Spirit is, is, is emphasized as, as unusually at work in this man's life. And so the Holy Spirit then is, is, is the, Luke is indicating something about what the Holy Spirit is doing. And that is this is a bit of a precursor, a foreshadowing of the new age of the Spirit that is being brought by the Messiah. You with me? The Holy Spirit is going to be ushered in by the Messiah, and this baby is the Messiah. He hasn't done all the things that he will end up doing, but this baby is the Messiah. So God is coordinated in such a way, and Luke draws attention to this unusual constellation of things, where the Holy Spirit is on this unusual guy, and they're here in the temple, but they didn't have to be. And there's this baby that arrives on the scene, and that's signaling something to us, that there's something about this baby that is going to usher in something about a temple, something about God's judgment, something about a hope of salvation, something about the Spirit. But we don't know all the details just yet in this part of the story. Now, what the Holy Spirit does for Simeon is give him special insight into who this baby is. The Holy Spirit, we're told here, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would meet the Messiah. I mean, imagine if this is you. You know, you, the Messiah is prophesied for, you know, book of Isaiah goes back 700 years before the time of Christ. You know, and there's, there were people that studied this intently and they were eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And so for hundreds of years, this became part of the culture of these people where they were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And so Simeon, somehow, we don't know how, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon you are going to get to meet the Messiah and see him with your eyes sometime before you die. We don't know how that happened. Presumably, though, Simeon had been waiting a very long time. And by the time we get to this story, Simeon's an old man. He's ready to die any day now, but I haven't met the Messiah yet, so I'm hanging on. It's the last thing to cross off my bucket list before I die is I want to meet the Messiah. God promised me somehow by the Spirit that I would meet the Messiah. So then one day, Simeon's at the temple, and then walks this couple, this young man, this young woman. They got this baby with them. Simeon was in the Spirit, as it says here, meaning there's this unique kind of divine power that's at work within him. Somehow there's a unique insight that is at work within him. He looks over and he sees this couple, this little baby, and somehow, by the power of the Spirit, he knew. That's the one. That baby, be like, this baby have a glow? You know, it was like, what was going on? It's like, we don't know. Of course, I mean, like, he was just an ordinary baby. 
But somehow in the Spirit, because the Spirit reveals things, right? The Spirit shows things to people. And the Spirit revealed to Simeon, that's the one. This baby boy was the Messiah. This baby boy. I mean, like, some, about half of you all have, like, little babies, right? It's like, like this little baby. Think about what it would be like to think that this little baby that you hold would be like, this baby will be the Savior of the world. And what kind of pressure would that put on you as a parent? You know, to say, man, I hope I don't screw it up. But it's like, that's, that's what Mary and Joseph knew. This baby boy was God's appointed means to bring salvation to the world. And so Simeon picked up this boy, and he says something remarkable. He says, holding this boy, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. It's interesting that he doesn't say, my eyes have seen the means through which you will bring salvation. But my eyes have seen salvation. Like, he's looking at a baby. Looking at Jesus, saying like, this baby, I have seen salvation itself represented in this little baby. And what he says here in these verses is a prayer. It's, it's just fascinating. He's talking to God the Father while holding God the Son in his arms. And he says, this baby is salvation. So, and if the timing is, is, is about right, this baby would have been about two months old. Jesus would have been about two months old at that time. And Simeon, at this point, he's like, okay, I've seen all I need to see. Simeon didn't see Jesus grow up. He didn't see him multiply the fish and the bread. He didn't see him walking on the water. He didn't see Jesus heal the sick. He didn't see Jesus cast out demons. He didn't see him teach crowds. He didn't see Jesus be betrayed or die on a cross or be buried in a tomb. And he didn't see Jesus raised on the third day. But he didn't need to. His faith was enough. His trust in God was enough. God had promised him he would see it. The Holy Spirit affirmed in the moment, this is the one. He knew God would keep his word. That's all he needed to see. His eyes had seen the salvation that was promised. Now verse 33. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. So this is all wonderful and exciting. You know, you get this little baby, and then you have this prophetic word, you know, spoken over your child, and they're happy, they're proud parents, you know, they're, they might be like going on Amazon and ordering their bumper sticker, you know, proud mom and dad of the Messiah, put on the back of their camel or something. I mean, they're just like, they're so happy and excited about this baby. But there are some other things that the Holy Spirit had shown Simeon that he's about to say, and they're not so pleasant. In fact, it's a, it's a bit of a dark prophecy about his future life and ministry. Now, we'll read two more verses, and that's as far as we'll go today. Two more verses. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There's three things I want to point out here. Three things that Simeon prophesies that this boy, as the Messiah, as the Savior, is appointed to do. The first one is that 
this child, Jesus, will cause the fall and rising of many in Israel. This baby, boy, will cause the fall and rising of many in Israel. To put it another way, this boy is going to disrupt the system. This boy is going to change the game. So because of this boy, those who are on top now are going to end up on the bottom. And those who are on the bottom now are going to end up on top. Jesus came to disrupt the status quo. Jesus came to usher in a new era where the Holy Spirit is generously poured out on all of God's people. And he knows that because that's what the Messiah was expected to do. Let me read to you another prophecy from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And he's speaking of the Messiah. It says, he will become a sanctuary, which is like a temple, right? He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. So you have the house of Judah and the house of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this in the book of Luke. So if we, if we look back at chapter, Luke chapter 1, Mary, whenever she gave her, it's called the Magnificat, you know, Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, she sings this. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, he has sent away empty. So Simeon is echoing in Luke chapter 2 what Mary had sung about in Luke chapter 1. Saying that Jesus himself will carry out all of these things. I could show you lots of examples throughout the book, but if you just skip to the end, Luke chapter 20, verse 17, this is what Jesus said. So people looked at him directly and, and, then, uh, and then said, what then is this that is written? This is Jesus speaking. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So here's the point. With, with Jesus, there's no neutrality. When you truly encounter Jesus, you're going to either love him or hate him. But you won't be neutral. If you truly encounter Jesus, not, not some you know, caricature of Jesus, but when you encounter Jesus as he really is, as he is revealed to be in Scripture, when you truly encounter Jesus, you won't be neutral. You'll either love him or hate him. And this is because Jesus did not come to be the spiritual icing on the cake. Jesus is the cake and the icing and the plate and the table and the whole meal. Jesus is everything. Jesus did not die and rise again to give you some advice or to give you a boost or to tweak you in a few areas to give you a hand. Jesus came to transform your whole life. Jesus came to change everything about you and the lives of all of his people and to reorder all of society and to bring into order the entire cosmos. That's who Jesus is. He changes everything. So he will cause the fall and the rising of many in Israel. 
In other words, people will either be for him or against him. You will either stumble and fall over him, or you will fall before him and be established and built up by him. But you can't ignore him. Jesus forces people to pick sides. Jesus forces people off the fence. Jesus forces people to contend with who he is. And so his whole life and ministry was characterized by extreme responses to him. Some people want to kill him, and some people fall at his feet and weeping and, and uh, clean, clean his feet with their hair. Some people die giving their lives in devotion to him, and some people want to kill those who are doing so. And that's what Jesus does. It's like you could call it a ministry of division. He forces people to contend with who he is. And so Simeon is stating this simple, undeniable fact that no one who truly encounters Jesus remains unchanged. Now here's the second point. Second thing that Simeon prophesies. Jesus will be opposed. He calls him a sign. He says a sign that will be opposed is, and for a sign that is opposed is the exact language. But Essentially saying that Jesus will be opposed. So a sign is something that needs to be very visible and clear and that you can't miss it. That's what a sign is. And so Jesus' life and ministry is, is a sign, and as a sign, it will bear undeniable witness to his identity as the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is salvation. But as a sign that's clear and unmistakable, he will be opposed because a true encounter with Jesus provokes a response. It signals a change. You have to contend with him. And so during his earthly ministry, Jesus was frequently in these situations where he was misunderstood, opposed, attacked, criticized. That happened all the time. He was opposed. And of course, he faced the ultimate opposition whenever he went to the cross. They crucified him while Mary, his mother, looked on. And of course, Simeon prepares Mary for this fact. Whenever he, he says this just haunting phrase, a sword will pierce through your soul also. And so it's symbolic, it's metaphorical language that he's using to prepare her for the fact, this tragic honor, that being a mother to the Messiah is going to break your heart. And so he prepared her for it. And so this fact that Jesus was so consistently and fiercely opposed should challenge our notions of who Jesus is. Because a lot of times whenever we think of Jesus, what comes to mind is often not who he really is. Whenever we hear people discuss Jesus, especially people that, that aren't necessarily Christians or they're just vaguely familiar with Christianity, they still can oftentimes have this opinion about Jesus that isn't accurate. A lot of people seem to think that Jesus is this consummate nice guy, a friendly fella, you know, <laughs> this harmless hippie sage that's kind of like a Gandhi figure. Or he's like a, a wandering guru who's sitting around campfires and saying like profound religious stuff. And uh, then he gives away free food and offers free health care. <laughs> like, well, that's, that's Jesus. And so anytime there's opposition or conflict or frustration, it's like, well, you need to be Christ-like. Because Jesus would never offend anybody. Jesus would never hurt anybody's feelings or oppose somebody or, or rebuke somebody. No, no, Jesus is nice. That's, how, that's what Christ-like means. But the Jesus that we see in the New Testament is opposed, attacked, ridiculed, mocked, harassed. 
He's much more complex and controversial than we think about a lot of times. And Jesus made a lot of people very uncomfortable. You know, my family, we, uh, at dinner time, well, we'll read, we've been reading through the book of Luke uh, after dinner. And so uh, sometimes we'll, we'll read a story, and we'll just read, you know, I don't know, five verses or so, just a short little story from the book of Luke. <laughs> and it's like I hadn't prepared anything. I'm just like, okay, what's next? I mean, just find the bookmark and just read what's next. And I'll read a story, and then I'll just look at the kids, and I'm like, well, um, that was weird. <laughs> and it's like, and that's, honestly, it's kind of embarrassing, because I'm a trained Christian professional, you know. <laughs> I've been seminary. I've been to seminary. I should know all this stuff. But a lot of times, I just look at these, I'm like, I, what does that mean? Like, because Jesus, I, there are a lot of times when I'll read things, I'm like, I, I don't know what to make of that. I've read the Bible more times than I can count, and Jesus still surprises me. Jesus catches me off guard. A lot of times, I'll see myself in the stories, and then it's kinda, it kind of offends me <laughs> whenever Jesus is rebuking the character that's doing the thing that I do. I'm like, hold on, Jesus. I thought we were tight. <laughs> but that's, Jesus is who Jesus is. And it's like, I have to contend with him myself. And Jesus will offend me. Jesus will sharpen me. He'll change me, correct me, challenge me. I have to, I'm not going to encounter Jesus truly without, without being changed by the encounter. You know, I wonder sometimes what it would be like to be one of the disciples. You ever kind of, I'm, I'm a bit of a daydreamer sometimes, so I'll just kind of daydream. Like, I wonder what that was like, you know, if you're just kind of, Let's say you had 13 apostles instead of 12, and you were the 13th one. You know, you're just kind of there, and you're hanging out with Jesus with all the rest. And I, and I think, you know, I kind of, kind of see myself as like, you know, the, one of the good guys in the story, you know. But it could be pretty cool. I see Jesus doing some cool miracles. and be sweet to watch Jesus walk on the water. Anyway, I knew he could do that, you know, <laughs> to hear him uh, preach and uh, to, to see him heal people, to watch him like, own the Pharisees. And like, that's right. Like, you guys deserve that. Uh, and those are the kind of stories that grab headlines, and, you know, we think it'd be awesome to be part of that, but then I got to realize those, you know, what got him crucified was the offensive things that he did. They killed him for the things he said. They killed him for the things that offended them, for whenever he, he, he forced them to contend with, with the light of revelation that he was bringing. You can't manipulate Jesus. You can't control Jesus. You certainly can't predict him, and you're not going to correct him. Jesus would always say the unexpected thing. I just imagine, like, what would Jesus say to me? It's like, I've read the Bible, I know the stories, and I'm like, I, I, would, I would like to think that I could probably kind of see where things are going. You know, he starts his once upon a time thing, and I'm like, I kind of know where this is going. And it's like, but no, no, I, I and you, any of us, if we were there, we would not anticipate where he was going because he would say the unexpected thing that would challenge us in just the way we need it. Because Jesus, that's who he is. It's like, he, we have to adjust to him. He does not adjust to us. So we don't get to invent whatever kind of Jesus we want. He is who he is. And so whenever Simeon calls Jesus this sign that will be opposed, you know, we might, it, it's easy to think, well, that wouldn't be me. You know, I would, I would always be on Jesus' team. I'm the guy that would be one of his faithful followers. But don't be so sure about that. I mean, honestly, if we were there, Jesus would probably offend us too. 
And we would probably oppose him for it. I mean, like, who all abandoned him? I think it was John and Mary headed at the cross, you know. Everybody else headed for the hills. What makes us think we'd be any different? And when all was said and done, most people did reject him. Because Jesus was not only disrupting the system. We like that, you know. Take out the system. Jesus was disrupting them. Disrupting them personally. And the only way to find salvation through Christ well, the only, that's the only salvation there is, but the only way to find salvation is to stop resisting him and let him disrupt you, to welcome it. We call that repentance. Repentance is like, okay, Jesus, I'm not, you've not, you're not going to adjust to me. I need to adjust to you. We call that repentance. And that's what Jesus wants. Make no mistake about it. Jesus does want to change us because he loves us. The changes that he wants to make is, you know, he's not some mad scientist wanting to twist the knife and hurt you. The changes that he wants to make is to change the things that are harming us, that, that we want to do anyway. Change the things that are not good for us. He loves us and he wants to fulfill us. He wants to satisfy us deeply. And we may not want to be changed in the ways that he wants to change us. And that's where the resistance comes in. That's where we oppose him. That's where we're like, hey, Jesus, you know, you're cool about, I'm cool with you all this uh, you know, knocking out the Pharisees and stuff. But this thing here, that's mine. You know, I appreciate it, but no, just leave that to me. And Jesus is like, no, that's, that's the thing that's killing you. And that's the thing you need to be saved from. And that's why I'm here. We have to let him do it. We and, and your heart will resist it. The temptation is to resist it, right? Because we're sinful. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us now, the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the strength to overcome to where we can actually experience the change. We can actually grow and be different people. And so the change is not this, this pipe dream. The change is not this abstract possibility. The change is real. So it's like, you know, those three things that were vexing me a year ago, I've grown in those areas. Here's just the Holy Spirit edit in the moment. The Lord has shown me that I can be an angry person. And so I'm like, man, how can I change that? How can I change that? It's, it's such a reflex. But I've, I've prayed about it. I'm like, Lord, I want to give this to you. I want to see you change that. And in the flesh, I can't do that. I, a leopard can't change its spots. I am who I am, right? But in the power of the Spirit, I've seen growth. Whatever that thing is, like the Lord can change that. But you've got to stop resisting him. You've got to stop opposing him and, and surrender to him. Let him be king over that area. So we've got to take Jesus on his terms. And to be part of his kingdom, we have to humble ourselves, surrender control, have to kill our pride. The third thing he'll do is he will expose people's hearts. He says the last part of verse 35 there, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He will expose your heart. So that's not just the, the external thing, that's the internal thing. So Jesus' ministry is like a light bulb for the soul. You turn it on and it exposes things. You encounter Jesus and all of a sudden you see things about yourself. 
He's the light that lights up the room, the light that in your heart lights up your soul and shows you things. And you can either run into the light and embrace it, repent and grow. You can run away from it and oppose him. Now, in a way, the Jews were used to this. They had the law of God, so that was like their light, right? So it's a, the Jews were used to that. God had given him his law, his word, given him the prophets. The Gentiles were not used to it, though. The Gentiles did not have those advantages, so they were in darkness. Verse 32 says, Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, meaning the light is going to get turned on for the Gentiles also. And so in the gospel, we see the truth about our condition. Apart from Christ, all of us are in darkness, period. Apart from Christ, you're in darkness. And the only way to recognize how dark the darkness really is, is to be brought into that light which is where the thoughts of our hearts are revealed. And that's what Jesus did. And he continues to do that for us now. He, he shows us things. He turns the light on in your heart. Like maybe there's something in, you know, that we've read or talked about or sung about or read in the liturgy that just kind of provokes something in your heart. And the Holy Spirit will do that. The Holy Spirit will say, pay attention to that thing. Listen to that thing. And the Holy Spirit will, will change you, give you things to think about. He's turning on that light and, and showing you what, he's, what, you know, what to do. Let me read you a text. This is Hebrews 4. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. That's the innermost part of you, right? Of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. And so that's what Jesus does. He will, he, 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 will, he will pierce through your soul and he'll show things, the inner motives of your heart. Now in the text I just read from Hebrews 4, he says that's done by the word of God. And so if you think, well, that's the Bible, well, you're partly right, but partly wrong. Because it, it could refer to the Bible. But the word of God, it's more accurate to say, here at least, that the word of God refers to the person of Jesus, and the word of God in the Bible bears witness to him. Because the word of the Lord, the word of God is a person. And if you look at the whole Bible, the word of the Lord is a person. It's, it is God himself, as he is revealed to people, and it calls that the word of God. So the Bible then is the written testimony about Jesus and, and who he is, what he did, and what it means for us. So as we encounter the real Jesus, which most often comes as we read the Bible, but we're not merely encountering the Bible, we're encountering the God of the Bible. We're encountering God by the Holy Spirit and Jesus as he, as he causes things to jump out of the page to you. And we're forcing us to contend with him and exposing us, laying us bare. So as he does that, he's turning on the lights, right? He's exposing sin and taking the mask off of our hypocrisy. He's revealing our inner secrets if we're willing to let him. And in that light, the, this glorious light of who he is, then we can clearly see the ugly horrors of our sin. We don't like that. That's not fun or pleasant. And yet, that is love. That's what love does. Love shows us how utterly desperate we are apart from him. Love shows us how grave our condition is so that we might see the light of Christ 
We must see the way out of the mess that we're in by embracing Jesus as the Messiah and his salvation. So we'll wrap it up here. The change Jesus wants to make in our lives, we call that repentance. And repentance is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't change ourselves, clean ourselves up, so that we can be acceptable to God. So we can say, here God, here I am, look how clean and shiny and new I am. That's not how it works. We don't change ourselves to get God to save us. Rather, we come to God as we are, as you are right now, with all of your sin, addiction, hard-heartedness, ugliness, rebellion, wickedness, filth, all of it. And if you don't see that in yourself, that means you need the lights turned on a little brighter. But that's, that's our condition, folks. Mine too. That's our condition. And so we bring all that to him, and through faith in Christ, he washes that away. He cleans it. He removes and purifies that. Through our faith in him, he makes us new, and then he changes us. So through faith, God gives us his Holy Spirit, and he changes us from the inside and the outside. And he gives us power to grow, power to keep changing. And whenever that power of Christ is within you, the, the shackles of sin can be broken. He breaks the power that sin has over you. And over time, I'm not saying it happens overnight. It may take the rest of your life, but you will change and you will grow. And you'll become who he created you to be. And I said earlier, nobody who truly encounters Jesus remains unchanged. And that's true. That's where I'm going to leave it. You know, I've just, just into my heart, um, just somebody needs, needs to hear, stop resisting. You're resisting the Lord. Stop resisting him. Stop opposing him. Let him change you. If that's you, that's the Holy Spirit speaking. For the rest of us, where are you in Christ? Where, where are we with Jesus? Have we, have we allowed ourselves? Have we surrendered to him? Have we, have we let him do the, that work of change within us? Are you going to fall down, bow before Jesus, let him change you? Or are you going to resist him and he'll fall on you and crush you? Those are the options. So if you have not truly encountered Jesus in this way, your next step is to surrender to him. Stop resisting and receive him by faith. Well, let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your people that are gathered here today. Thank you for your word that speaks to us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that turns on the light in our soul and shows us our sin as we encounter Christ. And we thank you for Jesus who humbled himself and became a baby, became one of us so that he can live a life of surrender and obedience to you and he can die as a criminal die in our place to bring us healing, forgiveness, salvation life Lord we pray that you will do that work of change in our hearts Lord I pray for whoever it is that needs to hear stop resisting Lord I pray that they will stop resisting Holy Spirit Strengthen them. Give them the faith to believe and to surrender to you. 
And I pray for all of us that we will enjoy and delight in the fellowship we have at the table now as we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the salvation that he brings. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.